We'll be looking at a couple different passages this morning. We'll, we'll be in First John, John, as Brett read, and also in Romans chapter 6. As I was making some breakfast a couple days ago, I was opening up a package of English muffins. And on it, it said, easy to split. And I went, this will be good, because I've never easily split an English muffin before. And as I put my thumbs in it, sure enough, it started to split, but partway through, it all stuck together, and it broke off in different pieces, and I went, this is not a true slogan. Probably the people writing it are selling a muffin, so surely they're going to make it sound better than it was. But have you ever come to portions in Scripture where where the reality of that Scripture didn't match up with the experience of your life? so that you question the truth of it? I can question something on the package of an English muffin. And my experience can validate that's not a true statement. But when it comes to scripture, my experience can never override the truth of that scripture. I've got to reinterpret my experience now. I have to try and look at what I'm experiencing in God's eyes in order to understand it like he intends me to, to be able to work through it like I ought. When you came to Christ for salvation, there's some things that are true. One of them primarily is that you came because there was a point in your life where you felt the guilt of sin before him. And you understood your helplessness coming to him on your own. There wasn't any other way. You believed that God was truthful to his word. And when you ask Christ to save you, you ask God to forgive you of your sin, you were quite sure of that. You didn't say any magical words That salvation experience happened because you came to knowledge in Scripture about who Christ was, what you were as a sinner, and what he did on the cross to satisfy God in order to forgive that sin. You you knew that. You went further than just agreeing that it's true. The, The demons are at least at that point with things about God. They believe they're true. But you actually came to a point of complete dependence. And we may not explain it that way in our minds. But we were all in. We put our eggs all in that basket, if you might want to say it that way. We weren't just trying Jesus out, giving it a ride. And if it works, we'll stay on that train. If it doesn't, we'll go on to something different. And at that point, other Christians would recognize us as being saved. And it's interesting that John quotes Christ using a term that explains the same thing. In John 3, 3, he says, Jesus answered him, talking about Nicodemus, saying, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And this idea of being born again is a pretty huge phrase. And it's the same as us saying that somebody's been saved, rescued from their sin. One of the differences is when when I think of somebody saved or not saved, I can't emphatically say, you are saved, you aren't. I, I don't get to make that judgment. I can look at evidence, 
maybe have some questions or have some support. But God can surely say whether someone's saved or not because he's the one who gives them new life so that they're born again. I want to think about that term as we work through this. It's a work of God, the new birth is. There's some other works of God that happen when we're saved or at the point of salvation, and sometimes we don't understand the reality of it. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Some of the things we're going to talk about today, I really didn't come to just hold like I was supposed to until about five or six years ago. Been through the passages. But I didn't, I didn't get it from God's view like I needed to. There were some things in my view that clouded it. Look at 2 Corinthians, if you would, 5, 17 through 18. Paul's going to explain some things from God's view about what happened to us in our salvation. He begins by saying this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that was a term I didn't completely understand, he actually is a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away, so something new happens, and something that was there before passes away. And the new has come. In fact, one commentator says this, it's a change, so to speak. As if the man was made over again, or the man had become something new that he wasn't before. And at this point, we find out we're placed in Christ. It's a position that we hold with him. And it becomes very significant all through the New Testament. We find in Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of the one spirit, and through that spirit we're baptized into Christ. And it's a position I hold. And a whole bunch of things happen from God's view because I hold that position. But I don't always catch God's view of that. And Paul's going to expound on this more, the same thing that we just read in, in the passage in Galatians. He's going to expound on it more in Romans 6, 1 through 6. And for me, this passage has become absolutely foundational to what took place in my salvation. And also absolutely foundational to how I begin to live the Christian life afterwards. And foundational to how I fight sin or don't fight sin in my life. So as we go through this, I want to consider today three things that we do experience. And it's the work of God, but, but we, we may not see it like he does. We're going to experience a second birth. We're already born. And we know we're born dead to sin because Ephesians tells us that, but we physically entered the world, but there's going to be a second birth. We're going to be born again, like Christ is saying. That's part of that experience. We're also going to experience the first of two deaths we're going to have. Already dead to sin, that's not one of them. But we're going to die in this salvation experience, says Paul. And the other part of this is, there's something about our inner man that's going to be knocked out 
completely rendered inoperable. No power over us any longer. Can't dominate us, can't master us, can't reign over us. That's been completely broken in the Christian. And I want to do one other thing too, and I don't want to overload, but this kind of goes parallel with it. In Christianity, at least in the last 200 years, it's, it's kind of made a resurgence. That there are three types of people that live in this world and everybody fits in one of these three categories. One is you're a believer. You really have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The other is a non-believer or an unbeliever. And John, John would work with those two identifications. You're, you're either in or you're out. You're either a believer or you're not a believer. But in our time period, what's come back is the fact that there's a third person that you can be identified at. That's the carnal Christian or, or the fleshly Christian that is continually living in sin just like they did before they were saved. And the question that has to be asked is, are, are they a Christian? Is that a biblical category? And I want to look at that as we go through this passage together too. So first of all, I want to talk about our second birth. First, the physical came out of mom's womb, entered into the world. Ephesians 2 would say, dead in our trespasses and sin, that's the condition of our inner man at that point. And you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, you followed the culture that was around you. And you followed at the same time the Prince of Peace, even though you didn't know it, because nobody would say if they're unsaved, well, some would. I follow Satan. <laughs> I'm his child, and I'm proud of it. But from God's view, that's what we were. He goes on to say this as part of our condition at our first birth. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Now this I say and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk or live as the Gentiles do because you're not that anymore. In the futility of your minds, or the mind that continues to go around but never reaches the conclusion that it ought to. It never really comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. It can't because it's still dead in its sin. He goes on to explain what we were before salvation. They're darkened in their understanding, not, not able to see it clearly. This is another one really important. They're alienated from the life of God. They don't have the life of God in them. They're living. They don't have the life of God. And he's talking spiritually at this point. He says it's because of the ignorance that is in them. Sometimes that can be innocent. Probably here it's more deliberate. We deliberately don't listen to what we know. And he says this is due to the hardness of the heart that at some point has rejected truth about God. This second birth that we're talking about then is something that's totally spiritual. We're made alive spiritually, born again. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 then complete that thought. But God, even though we're dead in trespasses and sin, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love where which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
And again, it's talking about live together with Christ. We're alive in Christ. By his grace you have been saved. So, so John describes this new birth that we now possess as the seed of God, the passage that Brett um, read this morning. In 1 John chapter 3, I want to look at verse 6 just, just a little bit as we continue. John's going to describe the results that happen when somebody is born again. In verse 6 he said, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him, nor do they know them. So when I first read that verse as a Christian, it kind of causes me to be a little bit unnerved. Because you know as well as I know, you sinned yesterday. And you probably sinned today already. And we know that frequently throughout the day, attitude's not what it ought to be, heart submission is not what it ought to be. There is sin still occurring in our life, and John's just saying, but that's not supposed to happen with somebody who knows Christ or is in Christ. But he explains it a little bit more in verse 7. Little children, don't let anyone deceive you. And there was back in his time. People were being deceived about this concept. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, just like he or just like Christ is righteous. And that idea of practice helps us understand what's going on because it's the idea of something that is habitual. Something that is willfully continuing. Something that becomes characteristic of the individual. So now we start understanding a little bit more of John's thought. Somebody who knows Christ characteristic, like like Abraham, going up and down, but in his character is one that is righteous, desiring holiness, wanting to serve God, wanting to obey. He goes on and explains further in verse 8. So whoever makes a practice, practice on the other end of sinning or continues to live in sin, that's their character now. It's their habit. It's where heart is, desire is. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So John divides it into two types of people. And then in verse 9, he helps us understand a little bit more. No one born of God. And again, you could say, no one born again. No one who possesses the life of God makes a practice or a habitual characteristic lifestyle of sinning. And then he says they can't. (laughs) It's just not possible. For God's seed, God's sperma, where we get our word sperm, where, where comes life. God's life, if you would, abides in him now. And he cannot keep on sinning. Not like he did before salvation. Not living in sin. Because he's been born of God. And we might make this statement now because of what God did at salvation from his perspective. As far as our insides are concerned, it is mechanically impossible for us to live in sin like we did before salvation. We're going to sin. 
And we'll talk about that in a second, but not like we did before saved. It's, it's, it's impossible because of what God did inside us. You can also say that the life of God, once placed in an individual, does and will grow. Because it's the life God put in us. And he claims in Philippians that that which he started, he will continue to its end. So that's a work of God that's going to happen. It's not going to look the same in everybody. It's going to go up and down. It's going to have some very low spots at times. Maybe even grow sin involved in that low spot. But it's going to grow. And it's going to continue towards maturity. So according to John, I have to answer the question, is there a third category of Christian? Or is there just a believer and an unbeliever? We'll look at Romans chapter 6 as Paul begins to share more. Paul asks the questions to the Roman believers, and remember that he, he's not been there, he's not taught them. He's just writing to them. And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue or are we to remain in sin? Like we did before we were saved. So that grace may abound? They're, they're probably thinking this question based on Romans 5.20 where Paul says this. Now the law came in to increase trespass, to to show its enormity, to show how much we're involved in it, and to what extent. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so if you have that understanding as a new Christian, it's quite logical to say, oh, grace comes as a result of sin. So wouldn't I want to get more involved in sin so I could experience more grace wouldn't I want to get involved in the biggest of sins so I could experience the greatest amount of grace? Logical, but completely outside of God's view. And Paul answers that question, by no means, or God forbid, or let that thought be completely done away with. That's a rhetorical question. It's supposed to be a no. Because this is the question. How can we, in verse 2, who died to sin, still live in it? So as he's telling the Romans, you can't live like you did before salvation. Because of what God did inside of you and the work of God inside of you. So if we're dead to sin, because that's what he's saying, how are we who are dead to sin? You always feel dead to sin? I don't. My experience at this point now doesn't always measure up to what God is saying in, in that's supposed to be going on in my mind. So Paul's going to continue to explain. One commentator puts it like this, a Christian to, to habitually sustain the same relationship to indwelling sin, namely that of a dependence upon it, a yieldedness to it, and a cordiality with it. They, they embrace it mechanically impossible. Again, because the inner man's been altered in such a way by God. So how, how does he alter it? Well, this is where the first of two deaths come in. And again, this is God's work in us at the time of salvation. This, this is what makes it mechanically impossible. 
for me to live in sin like I did before salvation. Look at 1 John 1, verse 8. Because we will still sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves too. So he's saying both. If you're living like you did before you were saved and you're calling yourself a Christian, you're probably deceiving yourself. John would say you are. Now he's saying, on the other hand, if you say, I'm righteous, I don't sin anymore, I've arrived, then you've missed it too. You're also deceiving yourself. And then he tells us, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he'll forgive, he'll bring the relationship back to what it ought. So, So what is happening about this death that we're talking about? What's well, the person who we were before salvation? It's the Mike Sanders I was before God rescued me. He dies. He ceases to exist. That's what happens when we've died to sin. This is how it occurs, because in my mind I'm going, so how, how does that occur? What's it linked to? What's well, linked to the fact that I'm in Christ? Paul takes the next three verses to to put that together for us. He says, first of all, that we're baptized into his death. He says, don't you know? And it's one of those questions where he's saying, you ought to know. You should have been taught to know. And I'm sitting here 40 years into my Christianity going, but I I don't really know. I don't really understand this. And he's saying, you need to know. And he goes on to make this statement. You've been baptized into Christ Jesus so that you were baptized into his death. Being baptized into Christ is the idea of being in union with Christ, being in Christ. All those things are true. So that in the rest of this passage, what is happening to Christ is happening to me as a Christian, but I don't feel that experience at salvation because it's something spiritual in nature that's happening. And it's a truth that God's wanting me to know because it can affect how I live my Christian life. So he says this, you died when Christ died because you were in Christ. You died in a death like his. And then in verse 4 he makes this statement, and we were buried therefore with him by baptism or by union or by being in him into death. In order that, In other words, something's going to happen now because of this. Somebody who is crucified, somebody who is dead, somebody who is buried gives proof that they are actually dead and they cease to exist and cease to live. Paul's telling me that's what happened to my old man, my old person, me, before I was saved. At salvation, me died. And here's the result of it. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that I could be reborn into a new creation. That I could be remade into a new person in Christ. The old has to die. You can't have split lives going on. 
So the death and the burial set the resurrection, or set the resurrection in view, and the resurrection that's being talked about, and that's the one to come. It's this new life that happens right now at the point of salvation. We were raised to newness of life, he says, just like Christ. And this new life is the opposite of being dead in our sin and trespasses. It's the opposite of living in sin. It's somebody with a new constitution, a new creation, a new inside from what they had before. So again, we don't, we don't have this new life as a possession for a dead reality. There, there's something that comes with it. So verse 4, he continues. We were buried, therefore, with him by the baptism into death. And Paul, it's going to sound like I'm repeating myself because Paul's repeating himself. Because I think this is very, very important for Paul that he wants us to understand. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and we have, he just told us we were, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And again, not a resurrection that comes when he returns. The resurrection of a new man, if you would. A new man in Christ. It, it's something that is for us right now. And it's a sure thing and it's a real thing. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt our old self is dead. So Paul makes that statement in verse 6. We know, we understand that our old self was crucified with him. And this is a reality that I don't feel in my experience. But God is telling me it's true. So that as a Christian, I didn't have as a new chapter in my life salvation. Here I am, unsaved, new chapter in my life, saved. It's here I am, unsaved, living in sin and not even really seeing it like God did. In fact, I thought I was a pretty good person. How, how bad can you be at eight years old? Please don't ask my mother. She's sitting here today. But at a point of salvation, that Mike Sanders ceased to exist, is what Paul's saying. You know that your old self was crucified with him. I started a new life. The Christian has two life testimonies, one before salvation, one after salvation. And they're two different people, completely. This one now has the life of God in it. This one now has the Holy Spirit in it. This one now has new desire to live for God. Everything's been altered so that I cannot live in sin like I did before salvation because I don't exist anymore. That guy's gone. That, that's what Paul's trying to help us understand. So salvation's not just a change in the old life. It's just becoming a new person altogether. And then he goes on to help us understand this. This is where the fighting sin comes in. We were crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Body of sin gives the idea of our physical body shell that in it has what we call sin nature. We got it from Adam, and the whole race has it. 
We're all infected with it. And here's a unique thing. Before salvation, I had sin nature. After salvation, even with the life of God, even with the Spirit of God, even with newness of life, guess what still exists, says Paul? Your sin nature. Could God have eradicated it? Why did God leave the sin nature? We know he's going to destroy it when he comes again. We know sin will be destroyed and death will be destroyed. But my sin nature still remains inside me as a new creature of Christ. God left it there. You know what? I don't know why he did. It would have been really nice if he took it out. But he left it there. And he's going to change it and he's going to destroy it, excuse me, when he returns. And I won't have to deal with it anymore. But here's what he did do at the point of salvation. It says, in order that the body of sin, this sin nature, might be brought to nothing. It it literally means made inoperable. No power to enslave you. No, No ability to master you. Could you imagine if you went to a boxing tournament you made it all the way there to the champion the heavyweight championship and you were fighting the champion and you came into that boxing ring and you saw the champion hanging over the ropes this is before he even threw a punch and he's unconscious and the bell rings for the fight to start any chance of you losing none at all That's what God did to us or for us inside. Our old nature's been knocked out, if you would. Not dead. But it's rendered inoperable so that it can't have the same power of mastering me as it did before. He he hangs like a boxer over the net. Net, it's not a net. Over the rope. Thank you. People are going, net? I'll do that a lot, so please just forgive me in advance. Could I still lose that fight, possibly? I mean, he's still standing. He's still up. The ref's there, ready for the match. What's the only way I could lose that fight? I just go lay down on the mat. I just lay down on the mat. I I just yield. I go, you win. Because that's kind of what Paul's saying happens with us when we fall into sin. Don't have to. We get to a point where you just go, I give. And we empower the sin nature that has no power over us. That's what Paul's trying to help us understand. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, imagine if you would, if you were a slave during Civil War time. And all of a sudden there's a paper that's tacked up, the Emancipation of... Emancipation Proclamation is tacked up. Abraham Lincoln wrote that. Primarily helped those in states that were already subdued by the North. Yet you still have a master. But this paper's saying you're free. And that master comes up to you and says, shine my boots, just like you did before. And in your mind you're going, I... No, no. This paper says I don't have to. 
but you're struggling inside, and he says it again, shine my boots just like you did before. And you get down on your knees, and you shine his boot. What did you do? You empowered somebody who had absolutely no right or reign over you to enslave you again. You gave your will over to him. This is kind of a picture of what the Christian does with his sin nature as we're in the middle of temptation. Everything that God has redid inside of us as salvation allows us to say, no. No. But it is possible for the Christian in his heart and in his will in the middle of that temptation to say, maybe, okay. And he gives something that has been dealt a death blow power to have mastery again. And this is the struggle that goes inside. Here's the application to it. Verse 11 of chapter 6. How how, how do you say no? Can you say no? Ought you be able to? Paul's saying we ought to be able to say no all the time. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's the first key. I'm dead to sin. Considering is, oh, not just I agree it's true. I believe it's true. It's, it's the same exercise of faith as when we first got saved. We understood the knowledge that goes with salvation. We agreed that it was true. And then we wholeheartedly became dependent on it. We trusted. Same type of faith that has to be used through all of our spiritual life as a Christian as we're sanctified. First, we have to actually not just agree, but actually yield and trust that it's true that I'm dead to sin. It has no power over me. In other words, look look at the last part of that, verse 12. It says, so let not sin then reign in your mortal body. You have choice. We we might say that everything's going to boil down in this sense to a choice. Always choice. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions because it can't anymore. Unless I yield to it, then it can. In other words, we can make the statement, there is no sin so powerful that the Christian can't withstand it. There, there is no temptation that literally bowls us over so we just could not help what we did. And we might say things like this today, but you don't understand, I, I've become addicted. I can't help it anymore. See, our experience is telling us that what God's saying about the situation isn't necessarily totally true. He's saying, yes, you can. I've reconstructed you inside with everything there to say no. You you just have to believe that, and then you need to make a decision accordingly to begin to work your way back out of it. It It boils down to that decision, point of decision all the time. And then he makes this statement in verse 13 of chapter 6. And do not present your members to sin, your hands, your arms, your feet, because sin has an outward action to it. 
So, so don't yield and give your hands and your arms and your eyes and your mind and your heart, all, all the things that we have available to us, don't yield them to sin. Instead, present them to God. But present has the idea of putting at one's disposal. It's the same word in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Same thing. Paul, Paul is just saying as far as sanctification goes, we're doing this over and over and over again. Constantly we're doing this as we fight sin. And then 1 Corinthians 10 just kind of clinched it for me. In verse 13 and 14, when this statement's made, no temptation has ever overtaken you that is not common to men. And I would like to think in my experience, I've been tempted in the ways other people haven't. It just feels like that. Surely I have, because I gave into it. There isn't any temptation that happens to me that isn't common to other men. Other people are experiencing it. It's not just me. And God is faithful on his hand. He's faithful on his side. He's put everything there. He's just asking us to yield. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. So what can I always count on as a God when I'm standing in this temptation or this trial that I am ready to say I'm done? That God has been faithful and he has not put anything before me that is greater than with him I have the ability to withstand. He thinks I can do this right now if I'll yield I've got to make a choice now. And I've got to make a choice of what I'm going to think about in my mind. Am I going to let my experience dictate the thoughts in my mind now? Or am I going to let the Word of God dictate the thoughts in my mind right now? Am I going to yield to the temptation? Or am I going to yield to God? It always boils down to that. And then He takes away my excuse that it was just too powerful. (laughs) It was just too much. Shame on you, God. Just shame on you, God, for doing that to me. He says, but with the temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape. That that way of escape is actually just one Greek word. Gives the idea of an exit. Think of it as an exit ramp from temptation. He always provides an exit. So it all sits there. The total wiring package inside has been changed so that I don't have to yield to sin. God's given me the provision of his word, his spirit, his new life. You could add to that other Christians that can help and support. And there's there's a way of escape. I do not have to yield. So why do I? Because I make a decision to. I mean, that's the bottom line. And it's the struggle the Christian has the entire Christian life. Charles Spurgeon made this statement. He said, if you are renewed by grace and were to meet your old self, I am sure you would be very anxious to get out of his company. In other words, he's saying, man, 
if you could meet, if you as a Christian could look at yourself like you were before a Christian now, you, you would not want your own company. But that's the reality that should be part of the Christian life. That's the reality of what God has done for us on his end. It's just not always my experience. So I have a tendency then to change God's reality, to fit my experience and make things a little better on myself. But Paul wants to call us back to God's view on it because that, that's the way out. And may God help us. And may God help us help each other as we fight the Christian battle. Lord God, you are an incredible, gracious God. There is so much in your scripture that lays right before us, but yet at the same time just, just escapes us. So again, dear God, we ask for your help. We pray, dear God, as a church, as we work through your scripture together, that we can help each other understand it more and more. Pray, dear God, that we can help each other in our struggles as we work and have desire to put those things into practice. And Lord, we want to give you praise and give you glory for what you have done in rescuing us from our sin. Lord, give us a healthy consciousness of yourself. Lord, help us to understand how you are looking at things. Lord, help us always to keep our mind fixed on you and on your word. 